All right. Now it's potluck. Are y'all going to be sweating that? Are we thinking about all the food and the good eats? Of course not, right? Because we have food you know not of. <laughs> all right. This morning is June. No, it's not June. This morning is July 6th. It's 2008. Our message this morning is called Coming Unglued. You ever heard that expression? Boy, yeah, Kat says she experienced it once or twice. Long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, I'm sure. We say somebody is coming unglued, or the old way to say it is they're coming undone. And this means that they're not holding it together anymore. All their ducks are not in a row. They're just starting to lash out everywhere. Coming unglued is usually not something that is good. And I put in your pastor's corner of your bulletin, if you'd get that out, a definition for you. Dabak, D-A-B-A-Q in English, is a Hebrew word that the Bible has translated many different ways. One way is to cling. Another way might be in King James, to cleave. If you're speaking modern English, it would be more like to keep close, to stick to something or adhere to something. In fact, in Hebrew... Because there was not a word for it, this is an evolving language. For instance, in biblical Hebrew, there's no word for airplane. So they have to take words that describe that, compound them, and make them uh, speak about an airplane. There was no such word as bagel or Kleenex or these kind of things, so their language is growing. And today, they had no word for something like superglue. So they took this biblical word and made it apply to glue as well. So when we're talking about this in the Bible, this word debak, what it has to do with is to stick to something like superglue. Come on, how cool is that? That's all right. So turn with me to Ephesians 5, and I want to talk to you about what the Bible calls a profound mystery. Profound mystery. Tell me when you're in Ephesians 5. Cast beat all of you there. Judah Benjamin, where's your sword? Mm, soldiers not supposed to show up on the battle lines unequipped. You must have it memorized, huh? We'll see after church. <laughs> Y'all in Ephesians 5? Okay. In Ephesians 5, we're going to pick up in the 22nd uh, verse. Now, don't get mad at me. This is not a marriage teaching. I'm going to teach you about a profound <laughs> mystery. This one phrase is one lots of people would like to take the black highlighter to. But when understood in its proper context, it is not dirty, it's beautiful. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Should we stop reading there, do you think? All men only know how to quote this. Nobody seems to know what comes next. It's like we've not even heard that there is another verse. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Uh Uh-oh. To make her holy, cleansing her by washing, by the washing with water through the Word and to present her to Himself as a radiant church. Before I read any further, because this is not our topic this morning, but I just want you to know, if you've ever been frustrated with anybody under your authority, whether you're in a workplace, whether it's a volunteer group but you were put in charge, or as the head of your house, 
If you do not see what you think is good submission, you need to look in the mirror and see whether or not you have good servanthood. Submission is not something that is forced, not biblical submission. Jesus did not force you to serve Him. When you found out how awesome He was, how much He loves you, it was easy to submit to His leadership. That's the way that works. I only say that because uh, I don't want anybody to tune me out as we move to the profound mystery. Without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. You think this was the first time that was ever said? No, in fact, this is written somewhere in the first century of the year of our Lord. And some four century, or 4,000 years before that, this was said for the first time by God to the first man and his wife. Now watch what, uh, watch what Paul says next. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However... Each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. The apostle's revelation into the heavenly realm was so great that even when he was talking about something as natural as the ways husbands and wives should relate to each other, he couldn't help it. He digressed. He saw as a deeper spiritual meaning, and he said, I'm really talking about a profound mystery, which is Christ in His church. But in, in any case, in the practical sense, you need to love each other. Well, I wanted to know more about this profound mystery. If the Word says something's a profound mystery, and the Proverbs tell us that it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but to the glory of kings to search it out, it's kingly to look into what the Bible calls a profound mystery. So turn with me to Genesis. Yeah, you know where all profound mysteries start, huh? Hey, relax. You're going to be in the Old Testament most of the day, so... It'd be easy for you to find the books, right? <laughs> In Genesis two, eighteen. Where are the rest of you? Two of you are there. Where are the rest of you? Come on, church. The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone, and all the women said, Amen. My wife leaves me alone in the house for a little while, and the house does not look the same when she comes back. Leaves me alone with the kids for just a little while. And when they come back, they've got red Kool-Aid smeared all through their hair and are running around throwing things at the neighbors. God created man, and it was His observation and no one else's that it is not good for man to be alone. Now, we're going to talk about this in the sense of a husband and a wife, but I want you to understand something else. It's not just about husbands and wives. God did not create any of you to be isolated human beings. All of us are made with a deep need to connect to the community around us. This is why when you go to a rock concert, even if it's unholy, you feel a sense of awe because all of the people are singing in one accord. It's why when you go to a football game and you see the waves, something inside you tingles. We were made to unite. 
And the devil will try to unite people around unholy things while God will unite them around the holy. God's observation about man is "Mm -mm, not good for you to be alone. But man doesn't have this observation yet. He doesn't understand it. So it says, Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. In Hebrew, name has to do with functions. The man is examining these animals. He's looking at how they work. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Don't you think that God knew that before He did this? If God said it's not good for man to be alone, then He puts man in a situation where He's looking and seeing squirrels in pairs of two, rabbits in pairs of two, birds in pairs of two. And He says no suitable helpers found for Adam. Do you think that was a surprise to God? God wanted Adam to understand we are not built to walk alone. We're built to be connected to other people. This is why Jesus sent people out in pairs of two. It's why I taught you about a yoke of the kingdom that goes two by two. It's why we were created. We're created to be in fellowship with other people. So for Adam, this was a revelation. For God, it's not. Just another thought that's kind of interesting. The Hebrews, the the sages actually say this. They say the animal kingdom was created in pairs of two. And that's because Genesis says they were. God put them in pairs of two. Mankind was not created Adam out of the dust of the earth, then tore out of Adam's side a helper. This is one of the reasons we feel so incomplete when we're not united with other people. It's because something is missing. A part of us is missing. The animal kingdom's not this way. They were created as individuals in pairs of two. Literally, what we see in the first man and woman is parts of each other. How about that? Give me my rib back, right? Not at all. I wouldn't do any better with it than Eve did. For Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. So the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called. Wow, man. For she was taken out of man. Here's our text for the day. You ready? Genesis 2.24 For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. For this reason, three things are going to happen. This happens whether we are uniting with a mate Or, as Paul says, a more profound mystery is this does not really deal with a husband and a wife, but this deals with God and His people. Three things are necessary that you find in this verse. One is, you must leave your own household. The second is, you must unite. That word there is debak. It means to stick to like glue with the one you're uniting with. And then the third thing is you become what the Hebrews call one. And the word for that is ichad. And you need to get this. What happens is you leave whatever situation you're at and whatever you're holding on to so that you can go to stick to something else like glue. It means that you're going to walk together, talk together, stick together through thick and thin. 
And in doing this, the process is that you become one human being again. Or if you're uniting with God, something more than just a regular human being. You become Christ-like or a Christian. Say, well, isn't it possible? Isn't it possible to unite with somebody or become one with somebody without uniting? Well, people are married all of the time and live in separate beds and have separate lives. How does that happen? It happens when you are not sharing your lives with each other. When you are not sticking together day in and day out. I want you to think about this profound mystery that Paul says stems out of marriage so that we can see it in our regular lives and then think about how it applies to the kingdom of God. When you get married, you leave me for us. When you get married, you leave mine for ours. Come on, are there no married people in here? You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Whatever was my favorite, when I got married, was no longer mine, it was ours. Whatever was hers before we got married was suddenly ours. Pretty good deal. My wife had a very nice car when we got married. I didn't. (laughs) I came out like a bandit on that. Well, what happens then in the kingdom of God? You must leave whatever you are clinging to to be stuck to Christ like glue so that over time, you walking where He walks, doing what He does, you become one with Him. And this is a profound mystery, Paul said. I don't know about you, but I kind of like that. By the way, don't any mother-in-laws in here slap me. But there is a Jewish saying that is supposed to date back to before the Babylonian captivity that says, when a son marries a woman, he divorces his own mother. (laughs) So what could that mean? This means in order to cling to something else, you must first let go of something. You must let go of your previous life to be able to join in a new identity and a new life. We'll leave the natural alone for a minute and talk about the spiritual. What happens when you try to adhere like glue to Jesus, but you cannot let go of the world? You're a two-headed monster, some kind of genetic freak. It will not work. Or because I put everything in terms that poor shallow Hal here can understand, you're a mama's boy. I can't go be bold in faith. I can't do what God says because... I'm still stuck on the world. Do you understand what I'm saying? Paul said this is a profound mystery. He was talking to them about the way husbands and wives should interact and he got all caught up and started thinking about the way that you interact with the King of Kings. There's a pattern in the Bible. We leave, then we cleave, and then we unite as one. Ehad. By the way, Ehad has to do with a plural unity. It means that two different things, like these two sides of the room, suddenly merge together and act as one entity. There is no question that God is vastly different from us and us from Him. And yet we were created according to the same pattern. Which means that it's possible to be stuck to Him like glue. And to be so close to Him that when people see you, they're really looking at Him. This was Jesus' ministry. Jesus is the reflection of the Father. So that when we look at Jesus, what we're seeing is the Father. Philip one time looked at Jesus and said, show us the Father, that'll be enough for us. He said, Philip, after you've been with me so long, you still don't know 
When you look at Jesus, you are looking at the Father. That's because He adhered His whole life like glue to Him. Saints, there's a message in this. There's a message in this. And not one that should just rattle around in your brain. One that should show up in your actions. When you wake up in the morning and you think, what do I do today? Find a way to be glued to Jesus. You're going to find out towards the end of this message, you're going to have two choices. Jesus holds everything together by His powerful Word. Or you can come unglued. I don't want to be unglued. I don't want people to look at Eric's life and say, what a mess that is. I want people to look and say, wow, there's some cracks in it, and yet somehow or another God fashioned that whole thing together to use for His purpose. This glorifies our God. It glorifies Him. I think we'll leave analogies behind because I'm going to get hurt. Let's go to the book of Ruth. Be in the first chapter of Ruth. Tell me when you're there. If you come to our singles classes that we schedule, you hear a lot about the book of Ruth. Because the profound mystery in the Bible is not just that husbands and wives look like Christ in His church. It also looks like a marriage that occurs between Israel and the Gentile nations of the world. Nowhere is this more clear than in the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is a story about a Moabitess what the Bible would call a Gentile, somebody like most of us. And yet, she meets a woman who is so profoundly affected in her daily life by the living God that Ruth wants to leave her own people, her own gods, and do something. Look at the 14th verse. Tell me when you're there. Aside from being the verse that Oprah Winfrey's mama Named her for, Oprah was supposed to be Orpah. She misspelled it. Not a joke. Most popular woman in America and supposed to be a Bible maid. At this, they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. This word in Hebrew is D-A-B-A-Q. And the idea is not just that Ruth held on to her, it's that while one woman was willing to leave Naomi and go back to her previous way of life, the other woman was not willing to be separated. Friends, there is a force in this world that 100% of the time will be trying to separate you from the good that you should do. Do you all not feel that? If you don't feel that something's wrong with you, you're probably dead already. If you are alive in Christ, there is the thing that you want to be stuck to. What Jesus would do. When He would do it. But there is always something trying to wedge you apart and get you to do something else. You ever stop to help somebody on the side of the road? Yeah, right? Stop helping somebody on the side of the road. But while you're pulling over, what's going through your mind? What if they don't want my help? What if they think I'm trying to hurt them, not help them? You know, what if they're going to rob me? Whatever kind of crazy. This is that divisive thing, trying to separate what God's joined together. You know when something's separated that God's joined together, do you know what the Bible calls it? Adultery. And this is how God, who is the Father, is intangible. He's spirit and not walking around. It was the Son who became flesh. But yet the Father says that Israel committed adultery. And Jesus called the whole generation of people an adulterous generation. They're supposed to be stuck to God. And they have been torn apart.
from God. Adultery in its very heart is an awful tearing, is what the word means. In other words, it's not neat like you did it with a razor, with surgical precision. It leaves jagged, frayed edges that are hard to put back together, and it hurts. Something's necessary, not just for a husband and wife to become one, but for us to become one with God. If you're clinging with both hands to that Lincoln out there with all of your might, you cannot then be clinging to God with all of your might. It is necessary for you to leave one to be adhered to the other, and then over time, you meld. Some of you have been married in here a long time. So you know what I'm talking about. Eventually, Jennifer and I get to a place where we're sitting at a table and we don't even have to speak. You know, something happens between our eyes and our eyebrows and we know exactly what's on each other's minds. This comes from being stuck together. We've literally become one. You know what is awesome? Is when God no longer has to split the heavens and say, Matthew, I'm speaking to you. And you say, Really, Lord, is it you? I want five more signs and wonders to confirm it, just like Gideon, as if Gideon was a great man of faith while this was happening. He was a shriveling coward. That's why God had to do this over and over and over to show the coward that it could become strong and mighty. Something happens over time. Matthew walks with God long enough and God does not have to shout from the heavens, move signs and wonders all over the earth to get Matthew to do what he should already be doing. All God has to do is make eye contact with him and go. And all of a sudden, Matthew knows I don't need to do that. You understand what I'm saying? I'm talking about a closeness with the Holy Spirit. Sometimes when we got something going on in our life, we say, I'm waiting on you, God, to speak. You got a whole book right there. It says everything that he thinks. He said, but I, it can be interpreted many different ways. And, and somebody says this, and somebody says. Are you not stuck to the Lord? You haven't been walking with Him a lot? You don't know what pleases Him in your life? It doesn't have to be so complicated, saints. In fact, you turn to the New Testament in the book of Acts, and they're going on a missionary journey, leaving families, leaving everything, going to a place where they're going to be imprisoned. And you know what the Word was that sent them? I mean, the powerful, earth-shaking, incontrovertible Word that sent them is seeing good to the Holy Spirit seemed good to the Holy Spirit. But you know what? My wife does not have to look at me and spell it out in big red letters. Sometimes all she has to do is suggest and I know exactly what she wants because we're stuck together. Since we got to develop a closeness with God and it requires us leaving something behind so that we can be united to Him. Ruth looks and says, Naomi... Your God's customs are strange. Your God is a little different, but I like it. We are supposed to be strange and peculiar people. You know why? If they're adhered to the world and it's moving one direction and you are adhered to God and it's moving the other direction, it's going to be like, why are they going the wrong way? The rest of us saw that armored car turn over and money's going everywhere. Get you some! And the Christian said, ooh, I'm not going to touch filthy lucre. God is my provision. And I think that's strange. If your life doesn't seem a little strange to the people around you, maybe we're stuck to the wrong things. So Ruth says, you've got some strange customs, girl, but I kind of like you. 
I want to tell you about a strange custom. Wow. In Leviticus 19, God tells His Israelites, He says, when you go out and you glean in your fields, you harvest your fields, don't you harvest all the way to the corners. Leviticus 19, 9 through 10. That's strange, isn't it? I mean, after all, if you work and you planted seed in every square inch of this room, when you came back to get your strawberries or whatever it was, you'd want them all, wouldn't you? You worked for them. God said, I care about the aliens that might come through your land. God wasn't looking for UFOs. He calls aliens anything outside of His nation of Israel. You know what that makes us? Aliens. Not from Roswell, from the nations. He said, I don't want you to get the corners of the field. Well, that's good. Because Naomi says, hey Ruth, why don't you, uh, why don't you go out and look in the field? Pick up with me in the second chapter. Ruth 2, verse 2. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in the field belonging to Boaz, who is from the clan of Elimelech. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters, The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. Boaz asked the foreman of this harvesters, Who, whose young woman is that? Do you honestly believe that she just happened to be in Boaz's field? And that it was just then that Boaz arrived and that that also was a coincidence? When we stick to our God's custom, our God's Word. There is no such thing as coincidence. There is no such thing as happenstance. To the world, they'll say, well, Boaz just arrived just then. But we know that the Word says God orders our footsteps. It seems strange to this little Moabite girl to go out and glean in a field. Why would you do that? The Moabites didn't leave the corners of their field for aliens. But she had fastened herself to the God of Israel. And in doing what he said, when he said it, she found a blessing in her life. Interesting. Talk about a strange custom in Deuteronomy. You don't have to turn there. I rarely lie when I preach. Deuteronomy 25, 5-10 says, Hey, look, all of you want to be in the blessing? If two brothers are in the same area and one gets married, and after some time he produces no children and he dies, his brother should marry the woman and produce a child in his dead brother's name. This will preserve his name for the generations. That's pretty strange, huh? Jen married me. She didn't like my brother. <laughs> strange, isn't it? Except when you adhere to the customs of God, we have something amazing that's happened. Ruth's husband has died. His brother is not near. But they were so zealous in Israel to keep the word of the Lord that it just so happens Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. Somebody that can bring hope to this widow. Not only can she be restored to God, but she can be restored in this world too. What she wants most is to be a good wife and a mother. And God has provided for her that opportunity. Talk about strange customs. Won't even go into the sandals. But the way that you keep a covenant, according to Deuteronomy, in this regard, 
is you exchange sandals. And if the kinsman redeemer won't exchange sandals with you, you spit in his face. Yeah, strange, isn't it? But how good did it work out for Ruth? Let's talk about this for a moment. She left her people group, right? She adhered herself to Israel, and then she became one with Israel. How do you know that? She is a great, 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 great-grandmother of Jesus the Christ. The women in Israel prophesy over her, say, hey, baby, may you become like Jacob's wives, raising up the house of Israel. Hey, baby, may you become fertile in the house of God. They had no idea what they were saying to this Gentile grafting because she birthed the line of the Davidic dynasty. David came from her body. Solomon figuratively came from her body. Why? Because she was willing to leave something and cleave to something else and become one. What would happen if she wanted to hang on to her Moabite customs and say, you know what, I know I came with you, Naomi, and I'm in the church, Israel, but the way I like to do things is like I was taught in Moab. She had missed out on a huge blessing. Well, she said, I'm not going out there to glean in that field. You people are crazy. What would happen? She wouldn't have been where she was supposed to be when she was supposed to be there. She is a wild olive shoot grafted into Israel's vine. Now, it's a deeper theological point and I won't spend a lot of time on it. She didn't replace any Israelites. She just got grafted into their blessing. She didn't replace not one. Turn with me to Ephesians 2. Then we're going back to the Old Testament, so don't get too excited. Ephesians 2. Thanks. Remind me again. Why do we preach out of the Old Testament all the time? Oh, y'all quiet, quiet, because I expect you to know the new. The new is like the cliff notes. You should know it. You should know it. You should know it. But since none of us were raised in Israel and none of us were raised around the customs of Israel, we're going to teach you constantly from the old. He said, well... Are you an Old Testament church or a New Testament church? The New Testament church only had the 39 books of the Old Testament to read from until the New was written. Any of you uh, Bible scholars know when the New Testament was codified? It's on the wall back there. It's almost the year 400. They had pretty working copies by 200, but hadn't agreed on the 27 books of the New Testament until around the time Jerome translated the whole thing. That's a long time for those New Testament churches, isn't it? What Bible was Paul reading? Oh, that's right. That's how he could say, this is a profound mystery. Genesis 2.24 looks like he's talking about a man and his honey, but it's about Jesus and His church. You need to leave your former life. You need to stick to Him like glue, and the two of you will become one to the glory of God. This is awesome, saints. So, well, I'm single. What are you always talking about marriage for? Get married to Jesus. It's better. He won't let you down. He doesn't snore at night. Right? And smack his gum or leave the lid up. Jesus is awesome in every way. Ephesians 2. I just want to sew up this idea of the way that not only is a husband and a wife a profound mystery like Christ in his church, but also Jews and Gentiles being married, sticking together, forming one new man is also a profound mystery. It says uh, 2.11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, 
that done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. This means there was a time in history where if you did not belong to Israel, you were without hope. But you know what? There were a long line of Gentiles who left their way of life and said Israel is a... They're the, the God of Israel is the God of the nations, and they left their way of life and stuck to Israel. Now, in Messiah, he's going to talk about what happens. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made the two one. What is the two? Jews and Gentiles and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in His flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. I don't have time to teach it. He did not do away with the law. He took all of the penalty of the law that would fall on a Jew and a Gentile for fellowshipping as one, and He absorbed it in Himself by being punished. But that's another message. His purpose was to create in Himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which He put to death hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near, for through Him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. I don't want to lose our practical application, so I promise I will come back to it. But even as a husband unites with a wife, they stick together and they eventually become as one human being, so people can leave their way of life, unite to Christ, and eventually become one with Christ, the same thing will happen with the nations. In Messiah, everybody has the opportunity to unite with Israel and the God of Israel, and the two become one people, one new man. My former pastor and my friend calls it the Israel of God. And I agree with the term. It just doesn't replace our natural Israel of God. This is a profound mystery. Paul uses the word mystery twice in Ephesians describing that. Let's get back to our practical application. Israel is a lesson for us constantly. In fact, Corinthians 10, 1 Corinthians 10, 11 says everything that happened to them happened as an example for you. Isn't that nice? Anybody here have an older sibling? Raise your hand if you have an older sibling. Don't fall asleep on me. Older sibling. You know what's neat about an older sibling? One of the things that I always enjoyed about having an older sibling (laughs) is that I don't know if perhaps the older sibling made a mistake during their teenage years, right? I could sit back and watch that and go, hmm, I might want to avoid that one. That one seemed to incur special wrath of mom and dad. (laughs) Like maybe if she... So... One of the neat things about this is Israel is like an older brother to us. We can look at their relationship to God and go, whoo, that one seemed to make God mad. Let's avoid that. And you can also look and say, that one made God happy. And we can embrace that. Now, I'm not going to teach it because I don't think I have time. But Israel was also a third profound mystery. We'll teach this on another day. They were married to the very land they were on. God said, it's mine but I want you to debauch, cling to it, just like you were married to it. Then in Isaiah 61, he says, 
I'm no longer going to call you deserted. You're going to be called inhabited. And you're going to be called married to your land and your maker. See, there is a divine covenant between Israel, their land, and their God. But that's another message. If you want to learn something about it, there's a message online called The Man, the Land, and the Plan. I tell you, that would benefit you. You get out of the baby pool of Christianity and learn about God's workings for the nations. But we want to get back to practical insight. Turn with me to Jeremiah 12. Practical insight. See, I'm trying to learn to be just a pastor and not always laying down what I think are the deep things of God. We'll be in Jeremiah 12. If you were still in Ruth, you'll make a right. If you were in Ephesians, you need to make a left. Two of you are there. Where are the rest of you? We'll be in Jeremiah. He's not a bullfrog, but he is a friend of mine. Jeremiah 12. We'll start in uh, 14. If I can find the 14th verse. There we go. Jeremiah is talking about the time in which Israel is getting a chastisement. It's like watching an older brother getting a whipping. And he makes a comment about the nations that agrees with Ephesians. It says, this is what the Lord says. As for all my wicked neighbors who, in, who seize the inheritance I gave my people Israel, I will uproot them from their lands and I will uproot the house of Judah from among them. But after I uproot them, I will again have compassion and will bring each of them back to his own inheritance and his own country. And if they learn well the ways of my people... Did you hear me, saints? If they learn well the ways of my people and swear by my name, saying, as surely as the Lord lives, even as they once taught my people to swear by Baal, then they will be established among my people. But if any nation does not listen, I will completely uproot and destroy it, declares the Lord. This is the narrow way, saints. There is an Israeli a Jewish man in the first century. They called him Yeshua. We call him Jesus. They called him the Mashiach. We call him the Christ. And he is teaching the nations the way of his people Israel because he is the king of the Jews. And if we learn his ways well, walking as Jesus walked, we are considered as if we were among the Israelites as one. What happens if you don't learn his ways well? He will uproot you. You go back and look carefully at the parables in Matthew and you find out what gets uprooted. It's the things that get burned and thrown in the fire. We have a choice before us. We can leave something to cleave to something else and eventually become one with it. I'm suggesting that we leave old empty ways of life, our former ways of doing things, and stick like glue to the Messiah that we might be saved and united with Him as one. Now, you remember that Israel is like an older brother? Let's learn a lesson from the older brother. We're going to read some of Jeremiah 13. This is what the Lord said to me. Go and buy a linen belt and put it around your waist. Woo! Praise God. He likes us to shop. But do not let it touch water. No idea why. So I bought a piece So I bought a belt and as the Lord directed and put it around my waist. Then the word of the Lord came to me a second time. Take the belt you bought and are wearing around your waist and go now to Perath and hide it there in a crevice in the rocks. That's not good news. When my wife hides the things she bought, it's because she doesn't want me to see the receipts. 
So I went and hid it at Perath, and the Lord told me, many days later, the Lord said to me, go now to Perath and get the belt I told you to hide there. So I went to Perath and dug up the belt and took it from the place where I had hidden it. But now it was ruined and completely useless. Buy a new belt. Oh man, look at my belt! It's got, what do people, rhinestones on it. Yeah, that's 70's party. Rhinestones on my belt. Isn't that nice? And God says, go set it out in the sun. Let it get all good and nappy. Now when you go pick it up, what do you think about it? Because of neglect, it's useless. Because of what? Neglect. It's useless. Then the word of the Lord came to me and says, This is what the Lord says in the same way. I will ruin the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. These wicked people who refuse to listen to my words, who follow the stubbornness of their hearts, and who go after other gods to serve and worship them, they will be like this belt, completely useless. For as a belt is bound around a man's waist, so I bound the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to me. He glued them to Himself. Those words for bound there are debak. It means that even like you fasten on your belt, I fastened them to Me. But they neglected Me, so they've become useless. Now, if you see your older sibling do something, and they get thrown in the can for it, or maybe beaten up for it, or maybe grounded for an eternity for it, what happens? You look and go, I think I'll pass. I'm not going to do that. I don't think I'm going to do that. Friends, when we neglect the joining, the super gluing of us to Jesus, to our God, something happens. Our wedding ring to Him, our union to Him, it becomes useless because of neglect. He intends for us to be bound right around His waist. The whole King James word, I had to stand back and go, what's that mean? It says he, we stuck to His loins. I didn't, I didn't get it. I had to go back and... Lord, I need an old preacher to tell me what this means. I don't speak King James. And I began looking. And what this literally means is that God took Israel and like a man would wear a belt with authority... You know, like where a sword goes and shows part of his rank and all those things. He showed them off to the nations. These people, unlike anybody else, are one with me. But they've neglected the relationship and it's not working. What do you think would happen if you were married to somebody and they neglected the relationship for 20 years? That's right, there's a tearing. There's a tearing. Maybe we need to mend fences, not just with each other, but with God. Maybe we could learn from that. Joshua had some advice. We're going to get into Joshua's advice, and soon we're going to eat. Is that a good word? We're going to eat? Okay, turn to the book of Joshua. So that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Yehoshua. You'll learn your Bible in our church. There's no question about that. Tell me when you're in Joshua 23. Joshua 26 has some pretty amazing advice for us. Joshua 23, verse 6. Be very strong. <laughs> Can you just be strong? Don't you got to work out for a while? 
Don't you? I mean, how do you just get very strong? You know, I knew some people that wilted when the wind blew on them. And yet this word says to them, be very strong. When the Bible's talking about strength, they're telling you to do something. It is never talking about your natural ability. Right? Schwarzenegger's got no strength over me in this area. When the Bible says, be very strong, he's talking about the Lord being strong in you and you yielding to the Lord's strength. This is how a woman with no legs and no arms can outwork you in the kingdom. She can pray while you sleep. She can speak when God tells her to speak while you stand in resistance. Be very strong. Be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or to the left. Do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them, but you are to hold fast to the Lord your God as you have until now. You know what that that word is? Glued. You are to be glued to the Lord your God. He said, don't go associate with them. Glue yourself to God. He said, but wait a minute, aren't we the salt of the earth? (laughs) Let me ask you something. If I put salt on food, does the salt begin to taste more like the steak I put it on? Or does the steak taste more like the salt I put on it? See, there's a difference between associating with the world and allowing them to associate with you. When I go associate with the world, I become more like them. When they come and associate with me, praise God, they become more like me. He said, don't you go and associate with them. Glue yourself to your God. He gives a warning that's worth reading. The Lord has driven out before you great and powerful nations. To this day, no one has been able to withstand you. One of you routes a thousand because the Lord your God fights for you, just as He promised. Be very careful to love the Lord your God. But if you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, and if you intermarry with them, if you get glued to them, and associate with them, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they will become snares and a trap for you, whips on your back and thorn in your eyes until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Our friend Joshua, our older brother in the Lord, has given us some sound advice. You can be glued to the Lord and He'll hold your life together. You can associate with the world and become completely unglued thorns in your eyes and whips on your backs. Let's be smart, friends. If we walk down our street and we look at a fellow on our left, go a little further, look at a fellow on our right, then on our left, and all of their lives have to do with destruction. You can allow them to associate with you, but you cannot associate with them. You'll become completely unglued. A king in Israel, supposed to be the wisest man who ever lived, and I believe it because the Word says it, but he looks like an idiot did three specific things that God said not to do. And one of them was don't take for yourselves lots of foreign wives. Because when you stick yourself to them, when you're glued to them, walking with them so that their interests become your interests, they'll turn your heart away. That great king in Israel sacrificed human beings in the temple of God. He got so far off course that Israel donated a plot of land to the United Nations. 
called the Hill of Unfaithfulness that once belonged to Solomon. Tells you what they think of the United Nations too, doesn't it? Joshua's advice is get glued to God, don't become unglued. I got maybe 12 more minutes and I think you need to hear this. So turn with me to Psalm 101. Everybody who's got a Bible, turn to Psalm 101. We're a little church. I can see you. Even when we're not a little church, I might come spot check. Psalm 101. Tell me when you're there. Okay. Now, it's been said that a good preacher will occasionally step on your toes. And I wore open-toe shoes today. That's a big surprise, isn't it? Yeah. I'm about to step on my own toes too, but let me tell you something, saints. If my toes are bloody after this, and you want to wear steel-toe boots to my church from now on, it's still for our benefit. If I slap you, you understand I'm preaching out of my own weakness. Now here it comes. I will sing of your love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will sing praise. We're good so far, aren't we? I will be careful to lead a blameless life. When will you come to me? I will walk in my house with a blameless heart. We're all good, right? I'm good, you're good. What's this next one? I will set before my eyes no vile thing. I read this this morning. Cold shivers went up my spine. There are an awful lot of things I would never do. But I don't seem to have a problem watching it done on TV. Think about that for a minute. Is adultery disgusting to you? Hateful? Never would be caught in adultery. Never would move in that. But got no problem watching a sitcom with an adulterous episode in it. I probably watch TV as much as anybody in this church. I'm not telling you to throw your TVs out. I'm telling you that there's a certain heart that says, set no vile thing before your eyes. He didn't say, he didn't say don't do a vile thing. He said don't even cast your eyes on a vile thing. The deeds of faithless men I hate, they will not stick to me. They will not cling to me. Men of a perverse heart shall be far from me. I will have nothing to do with evil. See, saints, what happens is our eyes are a great big gate. And the more you see a thing, the more it doesn't feel as wrong. Right? I remember when my kids were little, Judah saw a western and one man shot another man and you know the ketchup packet exploded. And he went... Right? Something happens over time, though, doesn't it? And now he can see guts come out of something and it's not such a big deal. We need to be careful. I'm not telling you it's wrong to watch your TVs. Okay? I'm not telling you anything that you're doing is wrong. I wore my open toe shoes today. I'm telling you I need to cling to Jesus because when you watch a thing enough, suddenly it doesn't seem so bad to do it. You understand? The thing that he says that he's going to have nothing to do with is good advice. The deeds of faithless men. He doesn't say, I'm going to stay away from the drug dealers. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, I'm going to stay away from the thieves. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, I'm going to stay away from those that are wicked. He says, I'm going to stay away from the faithless. I just suspect. I just suspect that's a little higher standard than maybe we have sometimes. We think we're doing good if we're not involved in the activities of the world. He says he's going to have nothing to do with any deeds of a faithless person. 
How many people do you know that live moral lives, but their lives are not full of faith? You can't have anything to do with that. They can associate with you, but you can't associate with them. You understand? That's a tough word. I know it's a tough word. Would you like some more advice from God's Word? Okay, it gets better from here. See, I slap you, then I give you a cherry, right? Carrot and stick. Turns me to Deuteronomy 30. Interesting scripture. Very interesting scripture. That word, uh, debak, is used almost 60 times in the Bible. Most of them are in Deuteronomy. Uh, Deuteronomy is occurring after the 40 years where Israel's supposed to be clinging to God. And Moses is reflecting right before they go into the promised land on their lives. And he, uh, he has this word for them. It's Deuteronomy 30, starting in, you gotta find it, the 19th verse. Moses is speaking. This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death. God set before them life in adhering to Him, or death in being separated from Him. Blessings and curses. How do you get a blessing? Adhering to Him. How do you get a curse? Removing yourself from Him. Now, choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to His voice, and hold fast like glue, hold fast, super glue to Him. For the Lord is your life, and He will give you many years in the land He swore to give your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Guys, this is not difficult. No, that's not right. It's not hard to understand that it's very difficult to do. Every fiber of your being is necessary. You have to set your mind, will, and emotions on Him to glue yourself to Him because it doesn't come natural. His ways are not your ways. And His thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Turn to me to Second Samuel 23. I'm going to share with you one more use of the word debak. What I want you to be thinking about in these final five minutes here. I want you to think about what in your life you may have to leave to be able to glue yourself to God. What you may have to leave to be able to cleave yourself to God. And while you're turning to Second Samuel 23, I want to read to you a list of some things. Abraham left his home and his country so that he could cleave to God. Lot left his home and his wife in Sodom so that he could cleave to God. Rebecca left her mother and father and the only life she had ever known so that she could cleave to God. Jacob left all of his work for 14 years in Laban's house so that he could cleave to God. The Hebrews left 400 years of settlement in Egypt so they could cleave to God. Ruth left the ways of Moab so that she could cleave to God. Elijah left his livelihood, burned the yoke of his oxen, and slaughtered them so that he could leave to cleave to God under Elijah's training. The disciples left homes and families so they could cleave to Yeshua the Messiah. 
Zacchaeus, little short guy in the sycamore fig tree, left profit and dishonesty so he could cleave to Jesus. I don't know today what you need to leave to be able to cleave to Jesus. But I know the Lord's made some things clearer in my life. And how dare I not be glued to Him. 2 Samuel 23. We're going to pick up in the 8th verse. My whole life I have, my whole Christian life, what was before that was not life. I have admired the mighty fighting men of David. And one of the reasons that I've admired them is if you read carefully through all of the stories, you find out they were the refuse of the world. They were the indebted and the discouraged. But they came to David and David made them something more than they were. And I found out this is just like King Jesus. He takes the losers and he makes them heroes. The whole grunge movement that moved through the 90s, the entire thing was based on that premise. And it's wrong. Their leaders produced death and despair and depression. But it was all based on taking the the losers, the ones who smelt bad, didn't dress good, any of those things, and suddenly calling that cool. And people flocked to it. Throughout the 90s, they flocked to it. And the reason that they did was because there's something in our heart that says it's not only the pretty people. It's not only those that seem to have it all together that God cares for. And that was a perversion of it. God takes those who are outcast and He makes them kings. Listen to what one of these kings did. These are the names of David's mighty men. Joshabeb, Bashabeth, the Tekamite, was chief, we're going to call him Josh, of the three. He raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. Next to him was Eleazar, son of Dodai the Ahoite. As one of the three mighty men, he was with David when he taunted the Philistines gathered at Pass Demem for battle. Then the men of Israel retreated, but he stood his ground and struck down Philistines till his hand grew tired. The word in English here is froze. In Hebrew, it's debak. Was super glued to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. Saints, everybody around us can hightail it. They can run. And they can commit adultery against their God by being torn away from Him and fastened to the world. But if you will glue yourself to the sword that is the Word of God, you will see victory in every area. Every member of your family may ridicule you or may fall themselves, and you will succeed. Everybody you know may be riddled with addiction and penalty, and you will succeed. This is not complicated. It's hard to do, but it's not complicated. You simply do what the book says. And you alleviate yourself of the excuse that says, I don't know what the book says, by reading it. When a Hebrew father's son turned 13 and read successfully, he prayed and said, thank you God, I am now released from my obligation. Because the kid had the obligation to read the Word and do what it says. Our closing scriptures, Romans 8. Y'all got time for one more? Romans 8. Verse 
going to leave this world behind. I'm going to glue myself, fasten myself to the Almighty God. And in the process, over time, I will become one with Him. Like Abraham, Lot, Rebekah, Jacob, the Hebrew nation, Ruth, Elijah, the disciples, and little Zacchaeus. I realize that I have to let go of something to grab on to something else. You know, they space monkey bars a certain way. Not much more than arm's distance. Why is that? You don't want to let go of one bar before you have to grab the other. God is not like that. He requires you to swing, let go, and then reattach. That's the only way this works. Most of the time, we are saying, Lord, I'll do what you want if you make it safe and comfortable by showing me something. I'm suggesting that your faith should be dangerous. Y'all in Romans 8? Pick up with me in the 38th verse. Dating isn't this way anymore, but it used to be that the guy had to approach the girl and he didn't know what she was going to say. So he had to put something at risk. He had to put himself out there. Risk rejection, the fear of loss, all of those things. But he had determined that the prize that he might win was worth it. We could learn something from that, saints. Romans 8, starting in the 37th verse. Know in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can be assured of something, saints. God will not tear Himself away from you. He was torn so that He would fit better with you. But you have to make a choice this day. Will you allow yourself to be torn from Him? The apostle was persuaded that nothing in all of the creation could tear God away from you. And yet your own will can tear you away from Him. I'm going to go back to my Joshua advice. I'm going to decide to be strong in the Lord and His mighty power. Me and my household, we will serve our God. I refuse to be torn away by anything in this creation because my God is able to hold on to me if I would just cling to Him. Y'all stand to your feet. In a few minutes, we're going to eat. The doors are going to come open. And we just go about our day. And the words that God worked to get down in my heart and out of my mouth to you could just fade right away. What I'm asking for, saints, is that you consider maybe, just maybe, that the God of heaven was speaking to you today and that it was more than entertainment. Maybe it required an action. Maybe there's something that we could do different tomorrow than we woke up intending to do today. Maybe there's something we can leave behind. And you know me. You know what my life is like. I don't practice aestheticism. I don't wear burlap sacks. I don't eat only tasteless food. I'm not saying that in some way by treating your bodies harshly you're more godly. I'm saying that there may be something in our lives that we could leave behind, that we could be better joined 
to Jesus. I'm not talking about churchy rules. I have none. None. None of you have experienced a churchy rule from me. I've got to be the strangest pastor you ever met. But there's not a single item in my life that I will not absolutely trash can for Jesus. We're going to pray. You do whatever you need to do. I don't know what that looks like. In my life, I was alone when I got born again. I just cried out to Him. And I was willing to change anything in my life. And I changed lots that I didn't even need to. I threw away records I didn't need to. Clothes I didn't need to. All those things. But I felt like better safe than sorry. And I don't regret it. I want you to consider this week what you may need to do. Amen?